Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 20th, 2019, and my guest is author and physician Adam Sifu of the University of Chicago. He last appeared on Econ Talk in February of 2016, discussing his book written with Vinay Prasad, Ending Medical Reversal, a discussion of how depressingly often healthcare therapies and treatments that appear to work in observational studies fail to show success and often produce harm when tested in randomized control trials. Today, we're going to be talking about his very short and very provocative essay in the American Journal of Medicine that he wrote with Vinay Prasad, John Mandola, and Andrew Foy. And the title of that essay is The Case for Being a Medical Conservative. Adam, welcome back. Thank you very much, Russ. It's great to be on. Uh, I see this conversation as a way to bring together a number of Econ Talk episodes over the years, your own uh, Robert Aronowitz on risky medicine, and recently Jacob Steginga on medical nihilism. We've also done a number of episodes related directly or indirectly to the placebo effect with Gary Greenberg, David Meltzer, and most recently Eric Topol. It also ties into a number of episodes we've done on pharmaceuticals, most recently with Robin Feldman. And finally, it ties in to interviews with Brian Nozick on the replication crisis in psychology and the eContact episode with John Ioannidis. Uh, for listeners who've missed some of those episodes, we'll link directly to them in the notes for this episode. Now, Adam, your, episode, your essay opens with these words. We have been called critics, haters, non-believers, or our least favorite, nihilists. We prefer the term medical conservative. We believe this is the ideal approach to patient care. Explain. So when we think about medicine, uh, we think about practicing medicine in a way that we are providing care that we are sure works. Um, and in today's world, with how quickly things move um, and how many different interests are involved in medical research and actually um, uh, pitching medical therapies to doctors, we worry that a lot of what gets out there into practice uh, really is not based on good data and, and often doesn't work. And so our paper, which, which actually reads somewhat like a manifesto, I'm afraid, um, um, is making the point that, you know, we need to slow down at this point. We need to think about the evidence behind um, what doctors are offering patients. Uh, and we need to consider the cost benefit of this. And, and I'm not just speaking about harms that often therapies carry, but actually the financial costs of those therapies. Yeah, whether it's worth paying an enormous amount for a very small incremental gain, which, sure. uh, which our system is very right now biased toward uh, adopting, deeply disturbing. It is. And, and it's not surprising. I mean, I think, you know, and the reason we say we're, we're not nihilists is because we recognize that, you know, medicine has done incredible things. And if you look at the advancements that medicine has brought to, you know, whatever, not to be too grand, but has brought to humanity over the last hundred years, it, it's mind boggling. Um, but the truth is uh, that if you look over my career, you know, I've 
been in practice for 25 years, uh, that there are very few things that have that have come out over the last 25 years, which which you can say, wow, you know, this changes everything. There are a few of them, um, but. But the vast majority of things have have offered small incremental advances, which some patients might accept and say, yes, this is a therapy that I'll take. Um, while other people, patients might say, you know, I don't think it's worth taking that medication either because of side effects, maybe because of cost, or maybe just because of values that this is someone who sort of sees sees their their approach to their own health as less is more and and they don't want to take a medication which only has a I don't know one percent chance of helping them and maybe a higher percent chance of some side effects that they're <laughs> not prepared to face absolutely uh, you mentioned the cost benefit analysis of course as I like to point out the incentives here in our system today versus, say, 50, 60 years ago are very different. Uh, typically, the patient's paying a small or minimal amount out of pocket. Sure. So our incentive as patients to take account of costs and benefits is, is very distorted. Our costs right. are often small. The benefits could be tiny, but they're positive relative to a very small cost and, right. and outweigh them. And so I say, go for it. In fact, one of the things that disturbs me deeply about medicine in America today, and just as a side note, Adam, I should tell you, some of my listeners assume I've had some horrible experience. I'm serious <laughs> with the medical profession. I've had some surgery that went awry. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've been very blessed. I'm very healthy. Uh, most of my uh, disdain or, or concern is, is merely intellectual. But right now, doctors don't ask me if I want this test, this treatment, this therapy. They just give it to me because they assume, well— well, for a lot of reasons, but I don't have usually any voice in that. A lot of times I want to say, stop. I have said, stop. I don't want that. And they'll yeah. say, oh, but it's it's free. And I say, yeah. well, to me, but that's wrong. It's wrong to do a test that's free to me. It seems to me it's immoral to, a, to do a test that's free to me with minimal benefits. Uh, and And I just, let's do without it. And that conversation very rarely takes place. I think I mean you you've had a lot of great episodes on you know the economics of healthcare and probably the only thing I can bring to it is to reflect on how it affects the conversations between a doctor and a patient in the room and I I find it so interesting because because cost has been for the most part removed um we end up Having a conversation, patient and doctors, about you know risk benefit, um, you know what are the side effects of this medication? How likely is this to help you? Um, what are maybe the opportunity costs? You know how much of a hassle is it is to come in and get this infusion once a month, whatever. Um, we often don't talk openly about the cost. But I think we're often doctor and patient both thinking about it. Um, I'm certainly aware of of how much um, you know we as a society are spending on things, and and it it does impact me with my recommendations. Um, and patients, interestingly, although they seldom talk about it, it's it's often a concern because even if they're paying just a very small part, that can be difficult for you know for a large proportion of our patients. And then it's interesting how often I get calls from people who've received their bill and are overwhelmed 
by the numbers on there. Um, and even if they're not actually paying for it and it says, you know, Medicare is covering this much, your secondary insurer is paying this much, and this is what's left for you to pay, and it may be a completely affordable thing for the individual. Um, Patients are sometimes overwhelmed and, you know, are angry about about those numbers. Um, and so I do think that everybody's thinking about it, although it's removed so much from our conversation. I'm going to reveal something deeply personal here, which is uh, I have some fungus on my toenails, evidently. I, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what it was. I went into yeah. a dermatologist to get an, uh, a diagnosis, and she wrote me a, a prescription and I went to fill it at the uh, Walgreens across the street, and they said, um, I, I, I looked at the, the bill, and it said, I, I thought I misread it. I think it, it was over $1,000 yeah, for this yeah. little tube of cream. Yeah. And I said, uh, there must be some mistake here. And the pharmacist said, uh, oh, no, but don't worry. You won't pay 1200 I thought, right. well, that's a start. <laughs> Uh, then I said, but someone's going to pay 1200 And that, of course, is a statement that no one has any interest in talking about except yes. economists. And I, it turned out it was, I think it was $15 or 30 with the co- because of the insurance arrangement. But I thought, is somebody collecting over $1,000 for this for my insurance company? There's an over-the-counter remedy that's $4.82 or 1150 or you know, some tiny amount that right. probably – and finally, I asked I, at one point. I, I think I asked my dermatologist, "Oh, you know, it, it'll clean, it'll clear it up more quickly." And I just felt, you know, I, I, I have to confess, I, I ended up filling the prescription because I wanted to do a test. I wanted to do one foot with the over-the-counter and one foot <laughs> with the great. other. That's I great. never, I never did it, and I, so I feel yeah. bad about that. But, but that whole interaction is something's terribly wrong there. Yeah, I agree, and it's and it's interesting because the the doctors who are spending the time seeing patients, um, and I mean, I'm I admit I'm one of them. Uh, you know, I don't have the time to think about this, um, but there is something deeply troubling, um, and some of it is that you know there's a lot of public money being shifted into the private realm you know, based on these costs. And and I understand there's something wrong, but on a day-to-day when I'm having conversations with patients and I'm just trying to get through my schedule, get people, you know, as much better as I can, um, uh, I don't have time to ponder it. Now, that's why you come on Econ Talk, Adam, so you can have this one hour at least uh, per month year, every three years, I guess, roughly. Right, um, to guarantee that I won't sleep tonight. Exactly, right? yeah. <laughs> but you, trust me, I'll get over it. Um more seriously, we're going to get in a number of the, some of the both therapeutic and philosophical issues surrounding this. But before we do, talk a little bit about your own practice and medical experience. And in particular, having done that, uh, tell me about how much interaction you have with the commercial purveyors of these ideas that uh, for therapies that might not work. In other words, how many times a, a year, a week, a month do people drop into your office to tell you about some new idea. And so tell us what your your practice is like uh, in a little bit of your life experience as a doctor and then how the uh, commercial side of medicine interacts with that. Sure. So I'm a general internist. I'm a primary care doctor. Um, I have, you know, my own quite large panel of patients who I take care of, primarily in the outpatient setting. Um, I do do some work on the inpatient setting as well, um, with a team of residents taking care of, you know, even sicker patients who've been admitted to the hospital. 
Um, and I kind of divide my time. I'm at a university practice, so I divide my time between that and then between time where I where I teach or you know write. Um, and as it's interesting, my uh, interaction with I don't know um, progress or people selling progress um, comes very much from reading journals. Uh, we are quite locked down here in that we don't have drug detailers coming through the clinic offering us samples and trying to sell their most recent um, medications. Um, because, like many uh, teaching hospitals, universities, uh, we feel that that's that's the wrong way to base our um, our ideas. Um, but but I feel like I'm faced with that on you know weekly basis as I read the journals and I read really important articles about um, new therapies, new devices, new interventions which are being studied. Uh, and in today's world, the majority of those articles are funded. Um, by industry, by the pharmaceutical companies, by the de- device manufacturers who are making those products. Um, and, you know, we're in a place where that's fine. Um, you know, who else is going to study these um, these advances? Um, but it takes a lot of thinking to figure out, wow, is this randomized control trial, which should be the perfect data, um, uh, is this okay, or or has this been sullied in in design, or or how it's being sold to me, um, even in very good peer-reviewed journals? Well, as Brian Ezek, a co-author, liked to say, um, or said in an article which I cherish, this line, "published and true are not synonyms." <laughs> um, that is very true. You, you say, "Who else to do these studies?" Uh, it reminds me a little bit of um, the agencies that assess the risk of, of various bonds and were blamed somewhat for the uh, sometimes for the financial crisis, uh, those agencies are paid by the people who sell those products. And I don't think anybody would take those assessments as truth. I think people understood that, say, Moody's and, and others who were trying to give a triple A or double A or triple B rating had a financial stake in it and really kind of liked the whole thing to kind of just keep moving along. Um, one answer to that, of course, to your question of who else could do this would be an independent organization, a philanthropic or supported, say, foundation-supported uh, organizations. They're very expensive. That's, that's, the, yeah. that's the, uh, the small hitch there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's difficult. You know, um, Vinay Prasad and I, in our, in our book a few years ago, uh, you know, we made this suggestion about, well, Obviously, what should happen is that the companies who produce the drugs and devices, sort of industry, um, should be forced to put money into, you know, a public resource who would then design and run these trials, um, knowing that this would never happen. Um, But like so much, and certainly... um, um, certainly, the uh, the financial watchdogs are are a great example. Uh, you know, we we are really asking industry to a great extent to judge the products that they are producing 
Um, and then it's a weird setting where then we sort of take their data um, either as peer reviewers or as um, you know as the consumers of data and then try to judge that data to say is this good data um, have they pulled something over on us um, and the, you know they're, they're they're very good at pulling things over on us both in how they choose the patients who are in the studies how they design the studies um, but they are also, coming out with some wonderful products which really do work and so there's a lot of there's a lot of teasing out of truth in in this process yeah i don't i think the ch- the challenge here in thinking about better public policy is to realize that uh drug companies and others are not are not evil malicious folks they're just responding to the incentives now some of the incentives they create through their own lobbying so you have to you have to put a footnote there but the uh the, the obvious problem with such a system, and of course it has benefits, it's not all dark. It's not just the right, right. same with the financial sector. They don't just siphon money out of my pocket to pay right. for their past mistakes. They also sometimes finance wonderful new things. And pharmaceutical companies, of which I have many friends in the business, create great products sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Uh, but the challenge is, it seems to me, is pretty simple. How do you get some skin in the game? So that we're not relying on people whose skin in the game works in the opposite direction. That just is like a recipe for for bad policy, bad outcomes. Right. And I would add that, you know, what makes this all the more difficult or concerning is that although I agree with you completely that, you know, these companies are mostly interested in making good products that will help people um, – there are certainly examples over the last 20 years of some real industry malfeasance where um, obviously harmful medications or medications which just truly don't work um, are marketed with companies knowingly suppressing data that shows that. Um, And although I'm an optimist and and I think those are the exceptions – Boy, you know, um, you learn about some of those examples, and it really worries you when you read just about any other industry-sponsored article. So, when the financial se- sector say hides data or or create some kind of fraudulent practice, sometimes someone might borrow money for a house they're, they're going to struggle to afford. Sure, uh, we could have a situation where a bank set of bankruptcies leads to a recession. There's some horrible things, but we're talking here about death. And, and it strikes me, and I, I don't want to name names because I'm not uh, well versed enough on the specifics. But you're free to name the names if you want. That a pharmaceutical company that knowingly suppresses data, uh, that a reasonable person would say uh, would would be a deal should be a deal killer, but it went to market anyway. You know, they get fined sometimes, like a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars. That's not enough. That's not close to enough. <laughs> they should be shut down. They should be burned to the ground, not literally, but figuratively. And their scientists scattered to the winds and their decision makers maybe should go to jail. I don't know. But and, and I, I want to add here, it's, you have to be very careful and I'll let you weigh in on this, you know, hiding evidence that doesn't conform to the finding that that they're claiming sometimes is a gray area. You know, it's, flags get raised and, and those flags um, – are sometimes extremely ambiguous. So after the fact, when it turns out this drug, say, kills people besides alongside helping them, you know, sometimes there was some evidence that it might be harmful, but it's not like 
smoking gun evidence. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's true. Um, And what often happens with these medications is that you're talking about um, medications which seem to have promise, and the promise may be because they're a version of another therapy which works and is already on the market. It may be that there is real bioplausibility that our models suggest that this does truly work. Um, because these um, because these interventions have gotten to phase three randomized clinical trials, uh, you know they they've gone through a lot of vetting at the beginning, um, showing that you know they're generally safe, that there's some signal of efficacy, um, and that it's it's only later that when when large clinical trials with maybe a broader array of patients that we see that, huh, this is a whole lot less effective than we thought it was, or there are adverse effects that are important that we didn't realize were important to begin with. Um, And so, as you say, it's not clear cut. And I think what often happens at that point is that the people who've been working on these drugs or these devices throughout feel like, ah, you know, we're sure this works. You know, we know better. Um, and we're going to push this through. Um, I would hope that if I was in that position, uh, I would, I would say, look, you know, we're supposed to be helping people. We have to be sure. Um, but I also understand that if you've worked on something for 15 years and you're pretty sure that it works and then you get some negative data, um, there's a temptation to say, ah, you know, that data is wrong. Let's push through. Added to it that there's a lot of money involved here. For sure. Hey, as I quoted you before, you said you've been called critics, haters, non-believers, and nihilist, stylists. Uh, are people really giving you flack? for this perspective? <laughs> People really give us flack for this perspective. Um, fellow doctors? Fellow doctors. Um, because, and, 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 um, and I'm okay with it to a great extent because the doctors who give us flack for this are also committed to patient care. And they feel like, look, I know this intervention works. Um, I've adopted this therapy. I've adopted this procedure. And I've seen my patients get better. Um, Why are you being such a nitpicker looking at these trials and saying, look, you know, the absolute benefit is small. The cost is huge. Maybe we shouldn't be adopting this. Um, I get it Um, because I think those people are honestly um, thinking that they're doing the best job for the patient. And they honestly think that that what we are doing is slowing down progress and maybe keeping some beneficial uh, therapies from patients. Um, and it's a struggle. I think it's really hard to think objectively about one's own personal experiences uh, I have shoulder issues on both sides of my body, and I've had a steroid shot in each side, and I got better afterwards. Um, About a year after one of those episodes, I had a very strong, intense pain uh, in the neck and shoulder area and ended up doing nothing. And the other day, it was yesterday, actually, my wife said, so how did you get better? That shoulder (laughs) thing seems to have gone away. I said, yeah, I'm great. She said, what did you do? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Right. Time passed. It got better. 
the nerve which was being impinged on got mm-hmm. unimpinged or whatever was going on. And I think, you know, as, as Jacob Stengiger points out in his episode, you know, one of the things about life is a lot of things are cyclical. They get better on their own and we misread uh, what treatment works and doesn't work. And I'm pretty confident that steroid shot made a big difference the next day, the next three days, say. Right, right, uh, right. Maybe it would have taken two weeks or six months or maybe it wouldn't have gotten better. But I can't tell. And my doctor, who's a wonderful man, an incredibly caring and, and effective doctor, um, he believes very strongly that it works for sure. <laughs> I understand right. that. Right, right. And there are wonderful examples of that. Um, the thing that for me comes to mind most, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit, bit of specifics, um, you know, as, as a general internist who takes care of, of a lot of older patients, um, one of the difficulties that many people have is spinal stenosis, which is um, a disease, a syndrome, where generally because of osteoarthritis in the lumbar spine, there is compression of the spinal cord itself. Um, and it can be a horribly debilitating illness. Um, where um, people get weakness, pain in their lower extremities, um, really keeps them from doing the things that they like. And and often they come and see me with this. Um, a therapy that I think we know works is, is a surgery, a laminectomy, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and since we're often dealing with older people, um, the risks are, are there, and some people aren't interested in that. Um, another therapy is steroid injections, a lumbar epidural steroid injection to try to, you know, shrink the swelling around the spinal cord. There are pretty good randomized control trials of that, um, which shows that it doesn't work. And when I say it doesn't work, it means it doesn't work, it doesn't, doesn't reach, you know, our level of statistical significance. Um, but there is a difference in those trials, and there does seem to be more people who respond than don't respond, more people who respond in the treatment group than in the placebo group. So for the most part, I say, I'm not going to offer this. You know, This is a therapy which doesn't work. But I really do know that, I don't know, one in 100 patients, you know, they may have a response to that. Um, do I know that that's, a, that that's not a placebo response? I don't really. Um, but it's what makes these decisions so complicated. Uh, you'll remember a few years ago, there was really a a terrible, terrible um, really outbreak of complications of those steroid injections related to a compounding pharmacy, which was using non-sterile procedures. And some people got terrible meningitis, some people died from that. Um, and the, the tragedy of that, of that was obviously that people were harmed, but it's that it was for a therapy which we're not entirely sure whether it worked or not. Um, so the complexity of this decision-making is, is, is overwhelming sometimes. I'm reminded of the view that says uh, stay away from hospitals because people die there. <laughs> and of course, that can be what we call selection bias in economics, but it also can be true. A hospital is a somewhat dangerous place. Yes. Um, the modern version of that is stay away from surgery. It could kill you. Um, of course, it can save your life also. And I, I want to turn to this question of, of what um, – and for me, I'm definitely a medical conservative. I, I'm For me, those kind of treatments are – last resort, desperation, if you can live without them. Of course, sometimes you can't function uh, without them. But I want to read another quote from, the, from your piece. The medical conservative adopts new therapies when the benefit is clear and the evidence strong and unbiased. Cardiac resynchronization therapy for patients with systolic heart failure and typical left bundle branch block, direct acting oral 
anticoagulants for prevention of arterial and venous thrombosis, and rituximab for lymphoma or therapies that sell themselves. So there are some miracles. Um, we have uh, a whole bunch of things that are just, as you say, glorious for humanity. Uh, of those, you list three things, which is typical in an article, by the way. Lists are three are good. Is, <laughs> is the actual full list 30, 300, 3,000 of new therapies that sell themselves? Meaning, tell me what you mean by that and how long that list really might be. Sure. I think when we say um, sell themselves, we would say that this this is a therapy that uh, you'd read a few randomized control trials um, that there is a clear benefit with a large absolute risk reduction, and and we are we are very serious when we talk about that about thinking about really important endpoints. So we're interested in things which improve mortality, which improve patient well-being, um, not things that improve markers of disease, surrogate outcomes, where you know who knows if that's important. Um, and generally, when you read those articles, you know you know it. You say, "Wow, this this is important." Um, and I think that if I said, "Well, let me look back over my career," I think we're talking, you know, a few dozen of those. Um, um, uh, some in the cardiology realm, certainly some in the um, hematology oncology realm, um, certainly some in gastroenterology treatment for hepatitis C, certainly in infectious disease treatment for HIV. Um, but the majority of things that we see now, you know, most of the articles that I read um, are either negative, um, you know, we tried, but we need to go back to the drawing board, or are very small improvements over something that we already have. Um, uh, the absolute risk reduction of comparing a new therapy versus the ex versus the accepted therapy is small. It's one of the reasons that if you read, say, the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, our, our I don't know, one of our Bibles, I guess, um, if a Bible can come out, can come out weekly, um, one of the journals that, that uh, publishes a lot of good primary research. Um, many of the trials these days are non-inferiority trials, um, are trials Explain. that compare. So that's a trial that compares a new therapy to an accepted therapy. It's not even trying to show that the new therapy is better. It's trying to show that the new therapy is non-inferior to the accepted therapy um, because this new therapy offers some other um, advantages. Um, seldom the advantage is that it's less expensive. More often is that it's better tolerated, it's less invasive, it's easier for the patient to use. Um, and that shows us that we're in a place that, look, medicine has come a long way. We've had enormous breakthroughs. And so the majority of the advances right now are small advances over accepted therapies. Yeah, the low-hanging fruit, some of it's been picked. Uh, right. Almost by definition, most of it's been picked. Or, right. Uh, and there's a there's a promise that, well, maybe we're going to enter a new phase, right? You hear a lot of people talk about personalized medicine and, and genomic medicine. Um, some people are all in on that. Some people are not. Um, and there's the potential that, boy, we'll find a lot of drugs um, um, that work on 
you know, specific genetic mutations. And we have some of those mostly in the world of oncology. And that maybe we'll get to the point that that we entered some sort of, you know, new, new golden age of medicine where, where many drugs a year are shown to have enormous breakthroughs. <laughs> I'm obviously more skeptical about that. I feel like we'll continue to have occasionally great advances, but mostly what we'll see are small incremental steps forward. And that would be great, except that those small incremental steps forward are, it, my understanding is they're built at very large numbers uh, of dollars and a patent is given out, say, because it's absorbed more easily in the stomach or more comfortably or you don't have to take it as often. And then that becomes the thing that gets prescribed. It's many fold times the cost, say, of a generic. It is better for the patient in some dimension, but it seems to me that should not be privileged with um, – the, the monopoly of a patent, in particular, the current system, the way that it doesn't encourage patients to take that generic is seems to me a really bad thing about what we're living in right now. Yes. And, and I think I think my co-authors would agree that that, you know, when we when we talk about being medical conservatives, it's not standing against um, those those advances. It's not standing against those medications. It's just recognizing the data, recognize what sort of an advance these medications um, bring, um, what are the costs, both economic um, and in terms of actually patient outcomes, and then being able to have an open discussion with the patient about that. Um, so rather than blindly accepting you know, the newest treatment for diabetes, it's saying, okay, um, this is the benefit of this new treatment. This is the harms. This is the cost. Let's have an open discussion with our patients who are, um, A, you know, overwhelmingly intelligent people uh, who can make their own decisions, and B, understand much, much, much better what they want for themselves and their health care than we could ever hope to. So to bring bring up an example that sometimes in the, the news lately uh – and get your thoughts on this. The insulin, you mentioned diabetes, insulin is quite expensive. Uh, however, for the latest state-of-the-art insulin, there yes. is, as we've talked about on the program before, you can buy insulin at Walmart, I think, for $25 a dose. My listeners right. tell me, oh, but that's not as good. And I, I'm sure it's not. Um, it, I hear it works more slowly. It has real lifestyle implications for the patient. And you could debate whether that enormous increase in cost is worth a sometimes quite large benefit in lifestyle. Uh, but no one's making that choice. <laughs> uh, or at least no one's encouraged to make that choice naturally. It's going to have to be decided from the top down because of uh, the nature of the current system. Right. It's it's a wonderful example, actually. And it's an example that um, when I um, precept our residents, um, when you know they see their own patients um, and I'm there to sort of listen to each case and give them guidance, um, it's, it's amazing to look at how we've made this transition over the years um, in insulin therapy to much more physiologic insulin, um, insulin which, which looks like how our own pancreas works, where there's, where there's sort of a basal level of insulin that, that, uh, that, that is always in the body, and then there are peaks that come you know, brilliantly as soon as people eat. Um, and uh, and you know we've developed, or other people have developed for us, for us practitioners, um, insulins which do an amazing job of mimicking that. Um, but 
They are much more difficult for the patient. They generally involve at, at least four injections a day. Um, and it's funny that the residents adopt that um, because that's sort of the newest thing to do. It's what's sold to them by um, um, by the experts in the field. Um, but often we see patients who then come back under worse control on that because they can't possibly handle those four injections a day. Um, it's just a lot of injections or maybe they're at work half the time and it's complicated to have your insulin with you and to be giving yourself a shot um, You know when you're in the when you're in the lunchroom on a quick break. Um, and that's a great example of, of, you know, where we should tailor our therapies towards the patient. And sometimes it's not the, it's not the most expensive, most advanced therapy, which is best for the person. You say, uh, quote, we resist the urge to conflate benefits of a therapy to a population versus benefit to the individual. And I know that, um, you and I and others are, are very interested in the lack of value in many screening tests. Um, we've talked on the program a lot about uh, prostate screening, mammography, and others where the benefit is quite is shockingly small, sometimes zero. Uh, there are an enormous number of false positives which alarm uh, the patient and then often lead to tests and further consequences that are danger, literally dangerous. Uh, some people would respond to that and say, yeah, but for the one person who's helped, uh, that's what matters. And of course, it's more than one. It's the, whatever that small number is. Yeah. And we don't know who that is right now. So we should just right. keep doing this. Right. Boy, and, and, and a, a topic that gets more and more complicated to me as I practice for longer, know more and more, and get to the age um, where I should get these screening tests that I've been um, offering yeah. my patients over the years. Um, and and you, you put it in a very interesting way because um, – I let's talk about prostate cancer screening. You know, I, I have had patients who um, have probably had their lives saved by prostate cancer screening. I can't tell you that for sure, um, but I've found aggressive tumors very early on because of screening tumors, which in all likelihood would have caused them problems had I waited for that person to have symptoms. I off. I also have a you know stable of men in my practice who I've screened, who've gone on to get therapy, um, who look back and say, "I think that was a terrible decision." You know, my my life is worse because of that decision. Um, I also have a lot of people who I've probably made more anxious um, just by delivering them information that they didn't need therapy, that this is something we just need to follow. And there's someone who is absolutely fine without prostate cancer. They remain someone who's absolutely fine without prostate cancer, but now there's someone who worries about their prostate cancer. And the people who are the people who are paying for that person's success are obviously different than the person who had the success. Well, yeah, that's the uh, personal data point thing we were talking about earlier. I, when, when I went in for my m most recent physical, which is about two years ago, uh, I explicitly told my doctor that I did not want a PSA, which is the prostate, yep. the prostate screening um, test. And um, they did it anyway. Oh. Right. And, you know, I wanted to say, OK, look, if you're going to do it, at least don't tell me the answer. Right. <laughs> right. And, and I, I can't. Um, 
it's such a symptomatic example of what's wrong with the with the system that my, when I when I confronted my doctor, not in anger, I just mentioned that. Yeah. yeah, I think I told you not to do this. He says, "Yeah, I tell them, but they do it anyway." And I'm thinking, really? Right. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How about me and you? <laughs> right. Uh, now I, I have um, I have friends and relatives in England, and my experience has been if you're not feeling well in England uh, and you go to the uh, National Health Service, nothing happens. They they angrily turned you away. In America, they're more prone to say, "Well, let's do an MRI uh, or let's try this uh, drug." And in England, uh, you have to basically be bleeding uh, or having a bone sticking out of your body before they're going to really intervene. So I want to ask you, it's kind of an unfair question. Do you think the National Health Service in England and other places like that are practicing medical conservatism, or is it uh, is that something we should be striving for? That is an unfair question. <laughs> they may be practicing medical conservative, <laughs> but not by choice and yeah. not by design. Um, maybe I'll, I'll pivot on it a little bit. Um, I have to say that what... What I enjoy most in my practice, um, and this this may sound uh, morbid, um, but is is taking care of people who are unwell, um, who are coming to me with um, concerns, complaints um, that bring them to me for help, um, because I feel like um, I have a lot to offer those people, and much of what I offer will actually be beneficial to them. Um, I, I can treat problems. I can diagnose problems. I can treat problems. Um, where I have much more problems are those healthy people who come in um, who want wellness, you know, who want healthcare prevention. Um, and I'm not sure that much of what I, well, I won't say I'm not sure. I am sure um, that much of what I have to offer um, is ineffective. Um, and even the things that are effective, you know, we can talk about some cancer screenings, um, um, have such a small absolute benefit that it's, it's very, very, very unlikely to help that person who's sitting in front of me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we all want, you know, magic cures we expect you to, you of course, have in your cupboard either a device or a thing I can swallow or a shot I can take that will make me better. And you're my shaman. You're my uh, you're cure me wizard. And we have a giant cupboard in the 21st century. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, it's uh, uh, okay. I'm going to read um, two paragraphs that I loved uh, from the um, from the essay and just let you. Uh, uh, expand on it. You say you write the following: robust critical appraisal may put the medical conservative at odds with quote content experts who may oppose our skepticism on the grounds that it's not informed by deep expertise in the particular in the particular issue at hand. Yet the medical conservative remains steadfast in drawing a sharp distinction between content level expertise and expertise in critical appraisal. These two may not go together. And the value of each must be judged on a case-by-case basis. For instance, the expert at placing implantable cardioverter defibrillator ICD devices may or may not be the most reliable expert in answering the question of when it is best to implant an ICD. Too often, content expertise becomes a synonym for devotion to the prevailing model or theory. At the core of this tension is that content experts are often enthusiasts for whatever content they're expert in, whereas the medical conservative is enthusiastic only for that which has been proven 
to improve human health. When genuine benefit exists for an intervention, it easily withstands critical appraisal. No one debates the value of antibiotics for bacterial infection, percutaneous coronary intervention for acute myocardial infarction, or repair of femoral head fractures. Close quote. React uh, to your quote. Expand on it. First, I have to give a nod to my incredible co-authors on this article. Um, since as I read those, I remember ones that, you know, in the first draft of this that I saw, I just read and I was like, wow, that is perfect. And that so summarizes my thinking. I am not going to touch that paragraph. Um, and I think this might be one of them. Um, this is an interesting struggle um, because, you know, medicine has become so specialized um, that it's hard um, sometimes for me as a generalist, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I love what I do. I, I think what I do is very important. Um, and if there's anything that I feel like I'm an expert in, it's probably appraising data. You know, it's appraising the medical literature and saying, you know, is this something that I would offer my patients? Um, and that that sometimes puts me in the position of arguing with someone who is a true content expert, um, who is the person who does these procedures, spends their entire life seeing these patients um, um, with these problems. Um, and they actually know how to treat those patients better. They understand the disease better. Um, but we will often disagree on on the value of an intervention. Um, and it's because, and I'm going to, I'm going to make myself in the right here, which certainly isn't always the case. Um, it's because they feel like I have seen this work, right? And as we know, it may not have worked. It may be just that the patient was going to get better and that that's what happened. Um, and they are such true believers in the, um, in the mechanism of, of, of how this intervention works that they're a bit blinded when they read the studies and lose track of, you know, this is a poorly designed study. Um, the absolute benefit of this is quite small. Uh, the risk of adverse effects is quite high. That me is sort of an maybe a disinterested observer will look at that and say, I don't understand why you're doing this. Um, on, a, on a larger level, um, this, um, this plays out in um, guidelines sometimes. Um, the um, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, is very proud of the fact that they really don't have content experts working on their guideline recommendations. Um, they have experts in health outcomes, you know, critical appraisal, um, and they will often run afoul of the specialty societies who are coming out with their own guidelines, um, which will almost always be um, more aggressive, more pro-healthcare than the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. I can't help but note that the uh, American Society of Engineers often gives the United States a D in infrastructure. <laughs> but of course they would. Uh, it doesn't mean we have good infrastructure. We could, that could still, they could be right. It could be there is a serious problem. But right. their recommendation alone should be taken with many grains of salt. Yes. Um, the other thing I'm reminded of is um, Nassim Taleb uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who, yep. is, who has made the analogy, which I love, which this reminds me of, that when you're trying to understand uh, gambling, say, at the roulette wheel, you really don't want to use the carpenter who built the roulette wheel on the grounds that, well, the carpenter knows more about it than you do. You're just a statistician. <laughs> and obviously, doctors' understanding of statistics is imperfect. 
Uh, I think that's a big challenge and interesting aspect of medical education and education uh, in education generally. Yeah. One place this comes to mind is there's a lot of issues, of course, in, in riskiness of procedures and testing with false positive, false negative surgeries that not just fail to cure the patient, but, but tragically uh, kill them or harm them. Almost all tests have costs. Besides the financial costs, they have radiation often involved, which leads to the risk of higher cancer in the future. One of the things that I, I've never really seen anyone carefully explain to me uh, is how do we know that a false positive has happened? Uh, how do we know that uh, – because the, the, the claim of a false positive means that we understand actually what does happen. If we really did understand that, how would we know it was a false positive? Does that question make sense? It, it does. It does, though. It may be too philosophical for me to attack. Um, I do, you know, there is um, a move these days. I mean, I think I think where we have difficulty with false positives, and, and we really do have difficulty um, in medicine here, um, you know our our level of significance. You know, like in in many realms, um, um, is the is the sort of five percent error rate, right? Um, and I know I was giving a talk once, and actually my neighbor, who's a uh, um, who's a small particle physicist, was in the was in the audience and came up to me and just just chuckled at like you know how can you accept that level of of a false positive rate? And I was like, well, you know, people are a little bit more expensive to deal with than your silly particles, um, uh, so that's an issue. And and it's it's actually been it's it's been nice to see the journals. Um, really struggle with how we can bring sort of Bayesian reasoning into um, um, into our analysis of um, of medical data more these days. Um, and rather than going by the kind of strict frequentist statistics of of l- let's actually really consider our our, our pretest probability. You know, how likely is this therapy uh, to help people um, based on what we've seen before, based on the the plausibility of this outcome, to see if we can have a better sense of um, of of what the real outcome is, and 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 maybe therefore um, decrease the number of false positives that we're seeing. Um, I. I'm not sure we're there yet, and I'm certainly not a statistician, um, but the risks are pretty huge because you have to think, so, you know, who sets that pretest probability, right? Um, and um, we have enough trouble with the um, um, with the people designing the studies, um, biasing the studies and um, to give the answers they want. If if we're also giving them a little bit more leeway in the statistics, will that be a problem? Um, but I do think that's promising, um, and I, I'm hoping that you know over the over the final decade of my career, I, I see more progress in that. Well, I raised the philosophical question, which you artfully ducked, uh, because. <laughs> uh, when, when economists or statisticians like to make fun of, of doctors, they point out, oh, they don't understand Bayes' theorem. They don't understand that, that a, a test that shows a person has, say, cancer, uh, the actual risk is, can be very, very small if the disease is rare and the rate of false positives is high. And then there'll be a little numerical example. Let's say the, risk, uh, the disease occurs once in every 100,000 100, uh, people. 
and the false positive rate is 8%, and therefore it turns out the odds of having a disease with the, a positive result are incredibly often incredibly small. And this is these sides being good for exam questions, these kind of observations, again, make some people feel superior to doctors, which I guess some people need now and then. Um, but how would you know whether what the false positive rate is? And it's a serious question. It's not actually a philosophical oh, yeah. question. So if I do a screening, I can understand that if I do a screening and then I do surgery and I see the thing I went to remove isn't there, uh, that's a false positive. Uh, do you have any idea how those kind of numbers get, get actually guessed at? Right. So, so I'll push back because I would say as, as physicians, I think from a diagnostic standpoint, we probably understand this better than anybody because we usually do get answers, right? Um, we see that person who we diagnosed with cancer who goes to surgery and they don't have cancer, or we see that person who we got a false negative test and we follow them clinically um, and we realize that they actually do have an important disease. Um, and actually, you know, on rounds, we talk about this all the time. When we, when we think someone has a disease and get a negative test, um, we will actually sit down and, you know, calculate post-test probabilities to say, oh, look, you know, there's still a 40% likelihood we got to go forward and do another test. Um, where it's difficult, though, and where I think um, doctors don't do a good enough job at it, um, and because I'm a doctor and I have to defend myself, um, <laughs> you know, and the stakes are high for us, um, which is why most people who criticize us, you know, I'm not sure have the standing to criticize yeah, us. We have no skin in the game. Right, right exactly. <laughs> is that um, um, when you're looking at a therapy, um, and there are, we always say there are very few parachutes in medicine, right? There are very few things that, that have a number needed to treat of one that, you know, you would die without this therapy and with this therapy, um, you will get better, right? Where there's such absolutes that, that we can truly tell, wow, there's a false positive, there's a false negative in a study. Usually what it is, is that um, there's a large population. Those people will respond differently to a therapy. Some of those people will benefit. Some of those people will not benefit. In the way we practice medicine today, we accept a therapy um, if it helps people in a statistically you know, meaningful, significant way. Um, um, but, you know, the difference, therefore, between a false positive and false negative can be a few patients, right, in a large study. Um, and so I think we don't understand that. And I think it's why, um, to go back to being a medical conservative, we feel like this is the right way forward, is to say, let's slow down. Let's, let's not accept a single, a single article, a single study of a new intervention, um, because we don't know if that drug is beneficial or that article showing that a drug is beneficial is a false positive. Um, we will know it's a true positive if we see that repeated a few times on multiple, on multiple different populations with maybe subtly different study designs. Um, um, and so maybe that's my somewhat defensive answer. But yeah, I love it. I, that's great. Uh, there's been a story in the news recently about um, relationship between depression, mental health issue, and uh, a particular gene. Uh, it's, I think, SLC6A4 yeah. for those keeping score at home. And in the 90s, there was this excitement that we'd found a genetic basis for depression uh, 
according to a recent article in The Atlantic, as well as a fascinating and uh, scorching article and a blog post from Scott Alexander at Slate Star Codex, maybe 450 or maybe even 1,000 studies were done confirming this relationship. A new study has come out uh, finding uh, there's no medical basis for that connection. It's uh, a sham, uh, a false positive, a not a false positive, maybe a thousand studies are <laughs> right. meaningless, totally misled us, not right, passed all the standard tests. And it's an enormous uh, wake up call if, in fact, this new study is correct. It's always a question whether it's correct, but yeah. uh, assuming it's correct, uh, it raises it, one of the authors was quoted saying the following, which I thought was reminiscent of your point uh, that it's uh, Keller is the one of the co authors of the piece. Keller worries that th- this is a quote from. Uh, Keller in the Atlantic. He says, people ask, oh, let me say it differently. Keller worries that these problems will be used as ammunition to distrust science. So that's the line from the Atlantic. And here's the the quote from Keller, who did the study. People ask, well, if scientists are publishing crap, why should we believe global warming and evolution? He says, and he continues Keller, but there's a real difference. Some people were skeptical about candidate genes even back in the 90s. There was never unanimity or consensus in the way there's for human-made global warming and the theory of evolution. And I, you point out that you're very careful to say, end a quote. Uh, my response to that quote is, well, of course scientists publish crap. They do it all the time. It's the nature of science. There's good science and science that doesn't stand up over time. Social scientists do it even with more regularity. Um, but you point out that when you write a piece like this, you get accused of being, quote, anti-science. What, all these studies, you're just going to reject them? That opens the door to fill-in-the-blank right. creationism, <laughs> anti-global warmingism, whatever. Uh, respond to that critique of your approach, and if you have any thoughts on the Keller et al. study. Right. Uh, um, it's, it's challenging, um, but – but it is true, uh, you know. Not only is there a lot of bad science out there, um, but the science does change. Um, our treatments change, evolve. Our populations on whom we're testing those treatments do change. Um, we are maybe um, in, you know, a a more hot water than economists because people are much more interested in medicine and medicine outcomes than they are in economic outcomes. You can argue if that's fair or not. Um, but, you know, every week you read Science Times, say, um, and many, many new studies, you know, new studies are covered. Um, and so people read that and they remember that. And Often these are little blips on the process of trying to find truth, and we need to accept that. <laughs> you know, not everything that's published is right, um, and even good studies are not are often not right. Um, we have an article which recently came out, which looks at part of this, which is called "Should Evidence Come with an Expiration Date," which responds to. Um, some recent uh, studies, probably the aspirin studies, are the ones that people know best. A therapy that was was you know clearly shown beneficial in the 80s and 90s, um, 
became adopted into guidelines in the 90s and 2000s. And then some really well-done studies show that, you know, at this point in time, the risks of that therapy for a subset of patients really do outweigh the benefits. Um, nothing's changed in, in human biology over that time, uh, but the risk of people have changed over that time. Um, there have also been multiple um, studies over the last decade about interventions for acute stroke. Um, and the first of those articles looked like this was ineffective. It did more harm than good. Um, but as the devices got better, as the operators got better, as we figured out who to use those on, um, those some of those interventions have appropriately become standard of care. Um, and you could say, you know, those first studies were garbage. Scientists don't know what they're doing. But it's the process of figuring out how these powerful tools work and in whom they work and don't work. So what's the advice you might give the thoughtful patient? Your article's written mainly for your colleagues. Yeah. And it's a, as you say, it's a bit of a manifesto. It's, um, it's a delightful read. Um, but for those of us out here in, in, in uh, anxiety land, as we, as we <laughs> age uh, right. and, and more things go wrong and more symptoms are, showing up every day, many of which are irrelevant, but some are life-threatening. Yep. Uh, how should we approach this philosophically? I, you know, there's, and, and I'm going to add a twist, which is, you know, my father recently had a procedure, he's 88. Mm -hmm. My thought was, you know, it's probably not worth it. Uh, after the procedure, the doctor said, good news, there was nothing really there and you don't have to come back again for it. <laughs> and my dad was happy. Uh, he's not a fool, though. Even at 88, he's yeah. he's mentally aware enough to know that maybe I shouldn't have gone at all. Uh, and right. it turned out, well, it could have killed him, right? Yeah. Uh, thank God it didn't. But uh, you know, as his agent, I would have counseled just to let it go, take a chance. Easy for me to say. I'm not him. Uh, but as he gets older, that's going to be my call to some extent more than it is now. Yeah. And how should I think about that? And when it's me, how should I think about it? Yeah. Um, my advice will, I think, seem obvious and maybe hard uh, to accept or at least bring into use. Um, but the most important thing <laughs> is to find a physician who you can actually talk to, um, a physician who has time to engage in a conversation and will, you know, accept your questions. Um, and then for anything that is recommended, um, to ask a couple of very simple questions. Um, the first question is probably, you know, what are the alternatives? And the alternatives mean, what if I do nothing here? Um, and then asking, if I accept this therapy, you know, if, if, if you're suggesting something which is right and I accept it, um, what evidence do you have that this is going to help me? And when we say help me, what does that mean? Um, you really need to know from your doctor, you know, is, is this something which may get better on its own? Um, because if that's the case, maybe it's fine to wait, especially if the risks of not doing anything are small. Uh, that's the case for, you know, to go back to your shoulders for many, many, many orthopedic complaints. You know, many of those get better on their own. And when we study those, often if you send people to physical therapy first, 50% of those people end up not needing the procedure that was recommended to begin with. Um, that may be because of the physical therapists are amazing, or it may just be because time is beneficial. The other thing is to say, okay, you know, so you're saying that this is a good therapy, 
what does good mean? What is it going to help? And if the person tells you that it's going to make lab value X better, but I have no idea if that's going to make you better, um, you should pause and you should think hard about that because um, I and my medical conservative colleagues um, are are very skeptical of um, surrogate outcomes, which have sometimes led us in the right direction, but have sometimes really led us astray. I think the challenge with that approach, uh, the first part about it that I just absolutely love, which is choose your doctor wisely and find a find a medical conservative or try to find one. Uh, I have a medically conservative dentist, which is very rare. Very uh, rare. When I asked him whether I really needed to replace this missing tooth way in the back of my mouth because there was a risk that the tooth above it would grow down and then go through my jaw and pierce through my throat and pin it to my leg because <laughs> uh, teeth continue to grow. He, I said, what's the odds that that'll happen in the next X years? Where, And he said, well, we really don't have any idea. And I thought, yeah. appreciate that honesty. I said, let's just keep an, you know, an eye on it. And he said, good idea. Uh, so far, so good, by the way. But the other problem is, is that when I say, you know, what's what will happen if I do nothing? Often that honest, medically conservative doctor will say, well, we don't know that with any precision. And, of course, patients want – even data-conscious patients want some data. And when you don't have it, which you often don't, we're kind of left uh, in the lurch there with tough situation. Yeah. I, I hate to fall back on the art of medicine because it's just um, – you know, it's such a trope. Um, um, but I think most of the art of medicine is, 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 you know, is figuring out how to talk to your patients. Um, because there are some people who, if you give them that, ah, I really don't know, you know, they get angry and will very quickly find a doctor who will make recommendations, um, which may not be the right thing for them. Other people are very happy to accept that. And I hear from some of those people, huh, that's why I continue to see you as my doctor. Um, and it's very hard to figure out um, um, you know, what people want, because if you ask them directly, we often don't know what we want from our doctor, um, maybe until it's too late. You said you had a large practice. Do you have a rough idea? What does that mean? What's a large practice, roughly? How many patients do you yeah, so 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 people in primary care, um, um, you know, general medicine, family medicine practices may scoff at me, but I take care of about 850 patients. Uh, that's kind of my panel, um, and that's that's based on you know people who have seen me in the last 18 months. I think is our cutoff. Um, if you go into our not perfect medical record system and mm-hmm. and look at how many you know primary care patients I have, I think the number is about 2,500. But um, many of those people have disappeared long ago and no longer see me. Um, And obviously, you know, every doctor will tell you that of those 850 patients, there are probably 100 that I see all the time and actively manage and know them about as well as I know my children. Um, And then there are another 750 who, you know, call me occasionally for a problem or show up every now and then for that wellness type um, visit. Um, and the wonderful thing about medicine is that people, um, there's a lot of flux. People graduate in and out of that hundred active patients. Um, um, so it's, it's fun. So when I spoke recently to Eric Topol, we were talking about the, he was decrying how little time uh, doctors spend with their patients, partly because of the need for, uh, well, it's low quality time, partly because the, often the doctor's typing <laughs> on a keyboard and keeping a, the EHR records up to date, the electronic health records. Um, but also just because it's there's a bit of a factory syndrome that you have to see yeah. patients yeah. rapid fire, you're not going to meet your goals, et cetera. 
Uh, do you have a rough idea of how long you spend with a patient? And I ask because uh, you mentioned the importance of conversation, and a lot of doctors aren't trained in that, never get good at it. And for many, it's a feature, not a bug, because they just, they're terse. They deliver the truth and they move on to the yeah, next patient. Yeah. Um, uh, so I can tell you the numbers, but then I can tell you the reality of it. Um, you know, my, my my practice sessions are four hours. I'm I'm generally scheduled with um, uh, a patient every every twenty minutes. Though once you hit eighty years old in my practice, you automatically get forty minutes, uh, which is very nice. Um, but the, that that time tends to um, sort of telescope that um, when somebody's there for you know you're on new blood pressure medication you're you're coming back for a check I really do everything I can to do that blood pressure check get them out of there um, and spend five minutes with that person um, which then enables me to take 45 minutes with the person who has a 20-minute visit who has something more going on. Um, and therefore, there are days that I you know, finish at, let's say, 5 o'clock, having all my notes typed up and can go home and relax. There are many, many, many days that I finish that day at 6 and at 8 o'clock when my kids go to do their homework, I sit down with my computer and do my documentation for the day. Do you think there's a value in medical education to teaching doctors how to listen and how to talk both? I definitely do. And I don't, and I think we're much better at it than we were, you know, a generation ago. I still think we have a long way to go. Um, and I think one of the difficulties seeing it for myself, um, you know, we, we, I am fortunate to work at a place where we have amazingly gifted, talented medical students. Um, but the, uh, the range of where their talents lie is broad. Um, and the fact is, is that some people come and sit down with me, you know, in my practice when they enter their clinical years. And I am just, you know, blown away that, wow, this person is sort of an old soul and already knows how to quickly form a therapeutic alliance and get the information that's necessary. And that person probably needs no more training. I sit down with some other people who I feel like, oh, you know, this person needs a three-month intensive course to figure this out. Um, and the problem is even in a, you know, a well-resourced small medical school like ours, um, I'm not sure we do a good enough job at individualizing education um, and in medicine, especially with communication, as you bring up. Oh, I think that's crucial. Um, do you think it's a big part of the placebo effect? I absolutely do, and I think we have data for that. Um, uh, Dr. Lembo at, um, at Beth Israel in Boston, who does a ton of really interesting research on this, um, in the so-called honest placebo, right, where we we tell you that we're that that the treatment you're getting is a placebo, and and has shown that it's really still beneficial in in multiple. He he works a lot with gastrointestinal um, uh, diseases syndromes. Um, but I forget the word he used. I, I think it might be thoughtful silence, um, you know, where the physician sort of pauses and says, hold on, you know, let me consider this um, and is able to tease out the effect of that. Um, and in my own care, I'm, I'm sort of appalled at, at how often we as doctors kind of, you know, abrogate our responsibility to, to deliver the placebo effect. Um, 
Um, you gave a health problem. I'll throw out a health problem. I hurt my neck a few years ago, and I went to a pain medicine doctor and then a physical therapist. The pain medicine doctor, you know, spent 30 seconds with me, recommended a medication, which, which you know, I don't prescribe to my patients. There's not a chance in the world I was going to take it. Um, and then I went to the physical therapist who spent, you know, 45 minutes with her hands on me. Um, and boy, I walked out of that physical therapy session feeling a whole lot better, both, you know, in mind and body than I did when I walked out of that pain medicine appointment. And um, I, think we, I think we need to learn that. So I want to close with the one last quote from the essay, um, which is really beautiful. It captures a lot of the way I think about about these issues. And I'll let you just react to your own words, or at least your co-authors. You can compliment them again if you want. But uh, <laughs> It says the following. In the end, the medical conservative stands in awe of the human body. We recognize that our knowledge and best models only rarely predict the success of a new intervention. We see true medical progress as slow and hard, in large part because nature has provided the human body with inherent healing properties. The wisest of conservative physicians understand and embrace how little effect the clinician has on outcomes. While many may call this frame of reference nihilistic, the conservative clinician sees it as protective against our greatest foe, hubris. End of quote. Beautifully said. Uh, Take us home. I um, I actually say this often um, uh, when I'm reading articles, when I'm teaching students, when I'm talking to patients, uh, just underlining how much we don't know. Um, I often encourage students to try as best as they can when they enter the clinical years to forget a lot of what they learned in the preclinical years when they learn the basic sciences um, because so often things that should work, that everything we know about science predicts that this intervention will work. Um, when we actually test it in human beings, it does not work. And it's just because we are so complex and our understanding is still so poor that once we take a drug which which looks great on the blackboard and works well in the lab and put it into a human being, boy, you know, it's a completely different game. Um, and I would I would underline that over and over again. My guest today has been Adam Sifu. Adam, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Absolutely. Thank you again, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.